0: Welcome to This Stroke Journey podcast, brought to you by the National Stroke Education Center at the University of Cincinnati. Your premier source for comprehensive diagnostic and therapeutic stroke education from the pre-hospital and emergency settings through the ICU and rehabilitation. Please welcome today's host, Dr. Jordan Bonomo.
1: Hello, and welcome to this recording from the National Stroke Education Center. I'm Jordan Bonomo, a neurointensivist and stroke doctor here in Cincinnati, and I am joined by my friend and colleague, Dr. Yasmin Aziz, MD, neurologist and stroke doctor extraordinaire, T32 research fellow who the NIH trusts with your tax dollars, (laughs) and someone that I trust to tell me about the future of telemedicine and stroke research. Dr. Aziz, welcome.
0: Thanks, Dr. Bonomo. Thanks for having me. Yeah,
1: I really appreciate you being here with us. Honestly, we haven't had an opportunity to talk a ton about research uh, in these podcasts, but I think this is important. And the future of stroke seems to be telemedicine and the robots. So necessarily research must follow, as they say. Yes. You happen to be this special breed of neurologist who does stroke and likes telemedicine and seems to have quite the future ahead of her in telemedicine and telemedicine research. So I figured you'd be the right one to teach us about it.
0: Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I think my generation of stroke doctors, so to speak, grew up on telemedicine um, and the pandemic uh, definitely (laughs) sharpened all of our skills, whether we liked it or not.
1: I think uh, my generation of stroke doctors grew up with Atari video games and, uh, <laughs> and arcades. Here's the question. So telemedicine itself is really challenging, right? We, yeah. we do a good job with it, but I, I still think that there are some pitfalls to it, and we've done our best to address them. But part of your upcoming career is really about optimizing stroke research with telemedicine. There have to be some pitfalls, and there have to be some benefits. Let's start with the good stuff first, yeah. right? Let's let our audience get uh, enthused first before we rip away all the hope. Sure. Um, <laughs> what's good about it?
0: So the way that stroke is practiced now, as you know, especially in the United States, is we have a hub and spoke model for most healthcare systems. And a ton of our patients are presenting to spoke hospitals with stroke. And if we can take advantage of the time that it's going to take them to get from that spoke to the hub and start the research process at that time, um, rather than waiting for them to get to us and then starting the research process, we can gain almost an hour worth of time and start the process early.
1: You got a telemedicine setup, you got a patient you think might qualify for a stroke trial. Right. What's your next step? Are you going to do this on your own? Are you going to have a research coordinator dial in and try to help out? How's that actually working for you?
0: Yeah. So we joke here that somebody needs to be the quarterback of these situations. I would describe it as organized chaos, which is the same term I used when I went to Disney World with my niece and nephew, in that multiple things are happening in parallel processes. So the first time I even get a whiff that somebody could potentially be a trial candidate The first person I'm calling is the clinical research coordinator. With that being said, my primary duty always as the physician is to make sure the patient gets standard of care treatment first. But I usually kind of float the idea, hey, now that you've arrived or will be coming to the University of Cincinnati Medical Center, you know, we do a lot of academic research and stroke is no exception to that would you be willing to consider your loved one or you as the patient for one of the trials that we're doing? And I kind of float the idea early so that way they have some time to process it and the informed consent process can kind of happen over the next hour rather than in a five minute conversation.
1: It's my understanding, though, that some of these clinical trials are occurring outside the walls of the actual hub, right? So at the spoke institutions, therapeutics are being initiated and protocols are started. How is it as far as a challenge to sometimes work with the spoke hospitals when you have a busy clinician who's called you to see a patient over telemedicine who you then have to engage in the research trial remotely? Any challenges there?
0: Yeah, I think it's always difficult. I think especially if you're working with a Bunch of different community hospitals, which we do, and I know most comprehensive stroke centers do, uh, I think the clearest communication you can give up front to both the family and the provider is the best way. And again, having help from the research team to kind of be calling simultaneously. For instance, if I'm calling and talking and consenting the patient, if the clinical research coordinator wants to be on the phone with the bedside nurse, that's always really helpful.
1: Another one of those parallel processes in in motion.
0: 100%.
1: So then you become the repository of the screening trial right so so you're screening for all of these trials in your head while you're trying to do the exactly. actual clinical care that seems a little bit hairy right it's super busy on stroke call in general and strokes hard and do you think that there's any way that telemedicine in the future will make that an easier process for someone like you
0: well i think there's two answers to that so the first is that prior to the nih stroke net developing There was a ton of competition for patients, and there were a lot of overlapping trials. And I think stroke net, at least here, you know, it's a priority, and so we try to prioritize those studies first. With that being said, the field of acute stroke research is moving to an EMS-based setting with our mobile stroke units. And so I think the decisions are always going to be made faster there, and whatever decisions need to be made the fastest to keep the patient alive are going to prioritize those trials first that are in the mobile stroke units.
1: It makes sense. As someone who's enrolled a, a lot of patients in clinical trials over my career, I find it difficult in person. I can't imagine the yeah. challenge of being effective at going through risks and benefits, inclusion and inclusion criteria, and then really being able to answer your patient's questions remotely. Yeah. How's it going for you?
0: <laughs> I think it's I think it's tough. I think as a field while telestroke has really taken off, acute trial enrollment with telestroke is lagging a little bit behind. You know, I think in general it takes a while for people to get used to consenting patients without that personal touch of being right there at the bedside. I think that's a major obstacle that we saw with the pandemic, but you know, at the same time, most of our patients in general I think only thirty percent of them have the ability to consent for themselves on an average basis, which is unique to stroke. Uh, whether it's cognitive impairments, you know, things like aphasia or neglect, or just severe dysarthria that inhibits their ability to communicate. So we have been talking to surrogate consenters or legal, legalized, uh, legal,
1: legally authorized <laughs> representatives, right? We just call them LARs because LAR, it's easier. See, yeah, I
0: was going to say LAR, and I was like, maybe I shouldn't throw out an abbreviation so soon. But we've been talking to them for a while, right? For a lot of our acute stroke trials and even for acute treatment. Um, and so that process is a process in the making. We're getting better at it, but we still have some work to do.
1: All right. So it sounds like it's, it's mostly good. A couple of challenges, right? Yes. Do you envision any stroke trials that just simply are not amenable? To telemedicine consent, is there anything that we're going to do that's so out there, so potentially um, risky that it wouldn't be appropriate? Or do you really think we can do this?
0: So that actually brings up a really good point about the fastest trial. So the fastest trial is uh, using Factor 7 for spontaneous intracerebral hemorrhage. It's going to be the first stroke trial in the U.S. to go through EFIC or Exception from Informed Consent. You know, whether that's going to set a standard going forward, I don't know. But that is definitely an example of one that we are going to be bypassing consent. Of course, we're going to reach out to the family if we can get them, but we will treat regardless.
1: Sure. And you know, having been part of the early days of EFIC trials and one of the original enrollers in the ProTECT trial, I do remember the challenges, and yeah. it was it was fascinating territory. Yeah. We're really breaking new ground, and in the setting of stroke, especially with ICH, when treatment early on may make such a difference, absolutely, um, it, it seems like the telemedicine, being able to reach out and talk to family would be helpful. and But the eFIC piece for, for telemedicine is interesting because you're going to enroll them and then you're going to have to talk to the families afterwards. Um, and I, I think it's going to be really interesting because that personal touch will be gone. It will be you on a robot or an iPad screen talking to a family member telling them, oh, by the way, The government says we can do this, and we did it. We enrolled your loved one in a clinical trial because we think there's a chance we can help them. You're going to get a bunch of head scratching, I think.
0: Yeah, you will. And I think that's one of the reasons why there are three criteria that you need for exception from informed consent. And one of them that you need for sure is community buy-in. But obviously, you're only going to get a small sample or a certain selection of the population when you're talking to them. I actually was out there for the fastest trial talking to community members about intracerebral hemorrhage, and it was really fascinating, people's responses.
1: Mostly favorable?
0: Mostly favorable, actually. And um, you know, you wonder, you know, is something like a basilar artery occlusion is that kind of the same? An acute life threatening emergency where sometimes looking for an LAR will kind of slow the process down.
1: Sure. It it almost sounds like you believe in science, Dr. <laughs> Aziz.
0: I do believe in science. Well, if
1: the pandemic has taught us anything, <laughs> science wins. <laughs> Dr. Ziz, I greatly appreciate your time today. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank um, you. I appreciate being part of the National Stroke Education Center's efforts. This is the National Stroke Education Center. Thanking you for listening today.
0: Thanks for listening today. This Stroke Journey podcast is a collaboration between the National Stroke Education Center, M Craig International, and Meded on the Go. For more comprehensive, high-quality educational resources for healthcare professionals, please visit StrokeJourney.com.